One of the most compelling fighters to come out of this generation for no other reason than his ability to come back against all the odds, despite plenty of defeats on the way up and setbacks, is Charles Oliveira. And in this process, he's become one of the most well-respected fighters and world-class talents in the sport's entire history. So what I've been lucky enough to do today is take you through the journey of his life story. But not just through my own research. No, today I've actually sat down with him. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Also, everyone's favorite translator, Fabiano Busque, and of course, Cochino, who many of you recognize from past videos and the work he's done with us on this channel. And yeah, he's the one who organized this and set the whole thing up. So a massive shout out to all of them, and of course, the biggest channel supporters in our Hall of Famers who make this sort of content possible. I'm Jason from MMA On Point, and here are 10 interesting facts about Charles Oliveira. Number 10, his upbringing. Charles Oliveira was born on October 17, 1989 in a favela just south of Sao Paulo called Vicente de Carvalho. He lived inside of a small house with only a single bedroom and bathroom between six people, including his brothers, his parents, and himself. Here's how Charles described it to us. Oh man, it's waking up. Growing up in a, in a community, it's complicated. You think about, you know, obviously, you know, I've been hungry because my, my, my parents work two jobs and uh, which is basically studying and do things. It's, it's, it was hard um, growing up. I mean, they did everything they could for me. His mother and father, as he describes here, worked a ton despite not even being able to read. Both were just extremely hard workers. His father spent a lot of time working in their local food market selling essentials, and his mother was a housekeeper. But on top of that, his parents would recycle, and one of the more effective ways they would do this was literally going to parties and grabbing anything they could for cash for recyclables, primarily aluminum cans. Just every moment of their day was focused on trying to help their situation and sacrificing everything to provide for Charles and his brothers for a better life. But even still, many of their clothes came from donation. And the way Oliver discussed it growing up, he certainly had enough food to survive with, but not exactly in abundance. It was never really enough. But still, his family persisted, and as you might have guessed, with football or soccer being so popular in Brazil, it was definitely something that he aspired to be and played a ton early on. But at an early age, the idea of being any kind of pro athlete looked to be a pipe dream. Number nine, health conditions. By the by the time Charles turned just age 7, he learned some truly debilitating news. This came in the form of two diagnoses. One, there was rheumatic fever, which in the simplest terms is an inflammatory disease, which in his case affected one of his ankles so severely that he could barely walk at times. Again, he was only 7 here. And the second condition that he developed was something called heart murmurs 
That's part of the problem of having something like rheumatic fever because it also affects the heart directly and can affect the blood flow of the heart. So most likely that's what led to the irregular sound of his heart murmurs, hence the name. And in light of these two conditions, he was basically told by doctors that any types of dreams of being an athlete were highly unlikely. And it's important to note here that the doctors felt he could become even a paraplegic if things did not improve. So luckily enough for him, and as we all know and can witness today, he was able to recover over time. But if there is one thing we've learned here, nothing about his success was ever guaranteed. Number eight, his introduction to martial arts. As his condition gradually improved and sports became a part of his life again, he came to know of a gym operated by Hodger Coelho, who by this point was already a decorated BJJ player, owning national championships in 2000, a brown belt in 2002 as a black belt, and by then, three Sao Paulo championships to his name as well. He would gain many more as the years went on, but this was the kind of gym Oliver was introduced to by a friend of his at just age 12. And the lineage of this gym is historical with notably former UFC welterweight title challenger Jorge Patino. That goes straight back to the beginning of jiu-jitsu itself in Brazil with Mitsuyo Maeda who brought the Japanese form of the art to the shores of Brazil. So needless to say, Charles was in incredibly capable hands that would help to facilitate one of the most dangerous submission artists MMA has ever seen. And as his talents developed, he began competing and it was in his late teen years that he was christened Duke. Bronx, meaning simply Charles of the Bronx, which referred to his favela upbringing by his BJJ teammates. Um, they used to, they, I mean, they used to call me the Bronx when I started with Jiu-Jitsu, when I really started going to, to, to tournaments a little bit more. Um, and when I was 18, that, that's when it really happened. So, so they said, well, no, man, we need something catchy. We need something different. So, I mean, you're, you're known as a Bronx, so let's go with that. And well, um, uh, it, it it worked. It, it, it was catchy. Yeah, people caught on to it and just it stayed. Dobronk stayed from then on. But in fact, it was also around this time that the famous photo of him on a scooter in the rain came around as well. Yeah, it, it's, it's just uh, so many so many times it ended up raining exactly when I needed the train. It's like many times, man, many times. And just real quick, how old was he then? What what year around about was that? About 18. And I lost count how many times I, I trained uh, like that. So then number seven, his BJ career. One part of Charles's career that often gets overlooked is what he accomplished before the UFC was even part of the picture. In fact, he literally quit school to pursue it shortly after realizing that this is what he wanted to do. Charles's team told us that this was when he was still just 12 or 13. And as you can imagine, his mother was very unhappy with this decision while his father, well, surprisingly, he wasn't as against it, essentially instead recognizing his son's talent very early on and believing in him. In fact, it was to such a degree that his dad would fund his tournaments instead of paying bills, and he hid it from his mom. It's kind of a weird one when Oliver reflects on it because he definitely encourages people to stay in school not to do what he did, but yeah, lucky for him the gamble paid off. 
And let's be clear as well, his mom was a massive supporter of his dreams as well. It's just that she wanted him to, I don't know, go to school and pay basic bills. So she was definitely coming from a good place. And he was well on his way to becoming a BJJ standout going all the way back to the early 2000s winning Sao Paulo championships. 2007 and 2008 were great years for him too as he won two first place medals as a blue belt becoming a CBJJE world champion and again in Sao Paulo for FPJJ. The following year he would repeat success now as a purple belt and play second for the organization's World Cup. And if those letters don't mean anything to you, it's pretty much the highest level you can possibly attain, particularly inside Brazil, aside from the actual world championships or mundials. And that's what makes this tier such a shark tank because a lot of these guys just don't have the cash to make it to the world championships. These were very high honors that Charles was attaining. So he was well on his way at a young age to becoming a major player in that world. So we had to ask him why this road suddenly stopped. I mean, after all, guys like Jacare had concurrent runs in both sports at the highest levels, and plenty of fighters like Gilbert Burns or BJ Penn were able to split them up. I know competing in Jiu-Jitsu, uh, it's a tough thing when you actually dedicate yourself to. You have, you have to dedicate yourself 100% to, to, to one thing. Um, and doing Jiu-Jitsu at MMA, it will be very hard. Well, first of all, if you're going to go, you know, against a guy that really gets into it and is going to get you, um, it's going to be really hard because you're not dedicated at, on, at this 100% of the time. Um, and then also there's UFC. Like, whenever I try to kind of free up some time to, to, to compete, I would love to compete. I love Jiu-Jitsu. Get the clearance from, from UFC uh, duties and, and everything that I have with the UFC to, to free up. So it's pretty evident what he had his sights set on. MMA was his goal, and sure enough, he began doing this concurrently with his first amateur fight, also in 2007. So then, number six, beginning MMA. Oliveira's first ever fight was held on the 3rd of November 2007, which, if you were doing the math, was just a couple weeks following his 18th birthday. Funny enough, I was talking to Cochinho about this fight, and it turns out he used to train there. The name of the place is called Delphine Box Gym, and so yeah, that means Charles's first fight was certainly a far cry from the arenas we see him fill up now. And the fight itself is an outstanding example of of all that BJJ experience making its impact on his career from literally day one. Of course, credit to anybody who steps in there, but it starkly contrasts how far ahead of the game Charles was on the regional scene. And with the pilot phase, so to speak, of his career, passing flying colors, he was turning pro only four months later. And immediately, he jumped right into the deep end with a one-night tournament actually as a welterweight, and in an appropriately foreshadowing way, this was all finishes. He even defeated Viscardi Andrade in the second round of the tournament, who actually went on to also compete in the UFC. So the competition level here was legit. I mean, that guy also won against Elizu Dos Santos. And so just like that, Oliveira was already a welterweight champion, but this was just the beginning. Number five, his MMA career before the UFC. From here, things pretty much took off. Over the next two years, he'd fight nine more times and finish all but one of them. 
We are talking 4 KOs slash TKOs and four submissions as well. He first picked off future UFC recruit Mehdi Baghdad as he went down in weight to what we all know him now for as a lightweight on December 13, 2008, and only 16 days later won another tournament for a Korea fight on December 29th. And what I love about watching all these old Oliveira fights is just how aggressive he was. I mean, just look at this fight with Dom Stenko. He just repeatedly goes for the head kick here. Not entirely different from the way he fights now, at least in terms of hunting for the finish. He just knows if he gets tripped or the guy manages to take him down going for a huge head kick, almost every opponent will immediately land themselves in even more trouble because that's his ground game. And how about this massive slam against Eduardo Pachu? For the most part, he just made his early career look so easy. But this was actually his toughest fight by far. I'm not sure the exact circumstances, but he clearly spent himself really early on, and Eduardo did a really great job resisting those takedowns and even getting some of his own. Certainly an early lesson that could have gone against Charles, where he managed to just eke out the split decision. From here, he'd take on one final one-night tournament, finishing both guys. And the thing to take away from all this is, yeah, you can see how he became the UFC's most prolific finisher. It's all here, the aggression, the creativity. I mean, he was just constantly dangerous everywhere the fight went. So it was a no-brainer for the UFC to sign him at this stage. Number four, the ups and downs. This momentum didn't slow down at all in Oliveira's debut. He instantly armbarred Darren Elkins in the first round in just 41 seconds. Then he took on the then recent tough winner Efrain Escudero and again made easy work of this seemingly giant test with a rear naked choke in the third. Standing tall at 14-0, it seemed like his future as champ was pretty much already set in motion. But of course, that's when he came across his first true test of hardships in the sport. First, he'd run into a prime Jim Miller who pulled the Uno reverse on the submission specialist, actually managing a super rare knee bar, which tells you how good Jim Miller really is. His next fight would land him in controversy as he crushed Nick Lentz, but it was with a super illegal knee that the ref somehow didn't recognize in real time. Un unquestionably an illegal knee by Charles Oliveira, and that really hurt Nick Lentz. So that win got overturned to a no contest. Then the Cerrone fight would happen, and yeah, things just suddenly weren't looking that promising after three really tough fights. And this is perhaps when he realized 145 might be the better option. But things wouldn't really go his way there, sadly, either. Over the next few years, he'd exchange wins and losses and managed a couple good streaks, but it would all be plagued with weight misses, amounting to four failures during his 145-pound tenure. He would get a dream fight with Holloway, but that was tragically cut short due to an actual esophageal tear in his neck. So this was how Charles reflected on this point of his career. Everything kind of exploded for me I mean, very early. There I was at the UFC just fighting with the best. With the featherweight experience, it just it happened really quick. I, I needed to continue to train, get better, get stronger, because I, have, I always fought, but I didn't have anything. Needless to say, after all that, it was time for a change. Number three, the move back to 155. All told, at featherweight, Charles had 12 fights, 
lost five of them. He missed weight four times, but still managed to finish six out of his seven overall wins there. So it wasn't an awful run by any means, but there were also clearly a lot of problems to get past. And even when he did go back up to 155, there was a quick loss in his second fight back. Nice going, Paul Felder. So I had to ask him about this in our call. How did this suddenly turn into his best streak ever? Uh, but then it really flipped the switch when I found out that my ex was pregnant and my, and my daughter was born. Now I had a daughter that I needed to give a great life to. So if I dedicated myself 100% to training, that's when I started to dedicate myself to weight training. Uh, I was a scrawny kid uh, uh, growing up. And then to um, get more fights, to win more, to make more money, to provide her a better life. So I just, that was the, the, flip, my, the flip of the switch from is when my daughter was born. So yeah, this happened in mid-2017, and it became quite evident that this effect was incredibly pronounced following the Felder loss. His coach, Alelson Albuquerque, was also a huge part of his striking development during this time as well. Alelson uh, was, you know, was key in my life because he is the guy that actually um, focused a lot, and he really got on me for, for, the, for the weight training piece and to get stronger. And when that flip switched uh, on my daughter, to see if he's, that, that door was one of the first ones that I knocked on. So I was unfortunate not with us because of the pandemic. Uh, some of it was very important in my life. And from here, his ascendancy through the lightweight ranks was incredibly rapid. His combination of more crisp striking than ever with his top-level ground game was proving to be an extremely hard puzzle to solve. And not long after that, he was dominating the division as its successor in the wake of Habib's retirement. But one nagging issue from the past reared its head back into the spotlight. Okay, here's a, an update, folks, uh, just for the record. Um, the title uh, is currently vacant. Number two, being stripped of the title. For the final title fight of Oliveira's 155-pound reign before the Islam fight was an incredibly tantalizing fight between himself and the wrestler-turned-striker Justin Gaethje. But because of what happened during fight week, the fight itself threatened to be overshadowed entirely. For the first time in UFC history, a champion was being stripped of their undisputed title not due to a loss or some sort of PD failure or anything like that outside of the cage, but instead for missing weight. And immediately, rumors began swirling that there were issues with the scales, and not just for Charles, but others on the card too. Um, you know, I think the, the, the weight situation um, and this was, you know, I think it was shady. I think it was shaky, man. I think it was not, I think it was really foul. I mean, you can't just go out there because it's not just a, it's not just a belt that we're talking about here. It's a legacy. It's a work 12 years and everything that I built to get to that point. So it's not just like, you're not just taking a belt away. You can't just come out and then take a belt away from a guy for having done that. Um, I've said this many times, I made weight on Thursday night, felt good about it. I was there and um, I, I, I stand by my work. I made my weight on, on Thursday night. Um, I did my job. I, to me, to me, it was a title fight. To me, that you can take that belt away, but you make, you know, I, I, I said this to the champion as an act. It became more than a title fight, even more. Uh, the, way, the way things happen, the fact that to me it was a title fight, the way I won. So fans are split on this one. 
Many will side with Charles, while others will point to his history of missing weight. But Charles being so adamant about this, make no mistake, makes this incredibly compelling. And if it is true that the scales were this far off, it's hard not to see why he feels wronged in that scenario. But despite that, Charles still lived up to his reputation matching the human highlight reel in terms of excitement and getting the emphatic win to cement himself at the top of the division. So finally, number one, the first Islam fight. Many have wondered, myself included, about the night Oliveira lost his title. It may have just been as simple as Islam is that much better, but I think most at least expected the fight to be a bit more competitive, and there's been a question if it was an off night for Oliveira, especially in comparison to how he's looked since then in the Dariush fight. So I had to ask him about this. Did anything happen on that night to throw him off of his game? It's very hard for me to explain what happened that night. I just, um, I look back, and I can't explain to you what, what, what actually happened. Uh, what I could tell you was I had uh, a good week, a good training camp. I had a good weight cut. I was feeling great at the arena. Um, I was, everything was fine. And that turned out to a bad night. Is almost better than, than, than I was. That's what it was. Either way, his outlook is already cemented here. We're definitely, definitely more accomplished than we ever thought. And if I stop today, if for some reason, these stopped i knew I, I look at how far we've come um, we've done so much with our careers um if i if i didn't fight to have achieved so much and have come so far uh it's been amazing so to this point he's now been in the ufc for over 13 years he stands way above the rest of his peers with an incredible 20 finishes inside of the octagon a record that is extremely unlikely to be broken for a long time considering anyone near him is either near retirement or already retired regardless of whatever happens in the rematch at ufc 294 he certainly is right about those accomplishments no one can ever take those away from him and in that way his his legacy is already cemented. Wow, what an incredible experience to go through all of this and what a career so far. I want to give a massive shout out again to Cochinho for everything he's done here. Charles was his connection and he set up all these times. He got Fabiano involved. He's just a really good dude. If you want to give him a follow, which I highly recommend, you can find him under Canal Encarada. <laughs> I know I'm butchering that, but hey guys, at least I'm trying. Or his personal account for at Luis underscore Cochinho. And of course, his YouTube channel, which is also under Canal Encarada. I mean, he just does a ton of really great stuff with fighters from all over the world. It's amazing content and is a great bridge between English and Portuguese speaking MMA fans. Trust me, it's well worth your time. And of course, the man himself, Fabiano, for doing an amazing job in his translations here. Super nice guy. He was really inspiring to talk to. And beyond all else, Charles Oliveira himself. He's so busy leading up to a major title fight like this across the globe where travel makes things way more hectic. What an opportunity to speak before his title fight. But anyhow, that's it for me, guys. I should say that we are considering releasing this interview fully unedited for members only. So if you would like to check that out, the only way to do so is by signing up by clicking join below or in the description under this video. So massive shout out to the Champs and Hall of Famers. You guys make videos like this possible. And we'll see you on the next video. Peace, guys.